On this first podcast of CardioScripts, we're hoping to give you a little bit more information about what our plans are. Liz and I really want to allow you at home to hear from the cardiology experts and their interpretation of important literature. So with that, we're going to have a lot of thought-provoking conversation, and hopefully that will continue long after the podcast is over, with you all joining us at our handle at CardioScripts on Twitter. The podcast will be engaging and hopefully it'll be interesting to the career cardiology professional along with the new student who for the first time has found an interest in our field. Every podcast will start with the presentation of a trial. It could be a recent trial or even an older trial. And we all know that we have subfields within the specialty of cardiology. And our goal is to bring in experts within those areas to talk about the trial and, and where it fits and how we can apply it to our patients in everyday clinical practice. The podcast will be released every three weeks, but don't worry. In between, Tracy and I will be releasing blogs with our thoughts on different trials that may have come out or giving you updates on upcoming podcasts. You can find more information, as Tracy mentioned, on our Twitter feed, at Cardioscripts. And you can check out our website, cardioscripts.com. So with all of that being said, I think it's time to talk about a trial. So I am very honored to introduce our first guest on CardioScripts, who also happens to be a co-host, Tracy McCauley. Tracy, thank you for joining us today. Why, thank you, Liz. Tracy is a clinical associate professor at the University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy and a cardiology clinical pharmacist at UK Healthcare. She served as director of the Cardiovascular Pharmacy Service, director of transitional care, and until recently served as UK's PGY2 Cardiology Residency Director, a role she held for 10 years. She currently runs a post-acute coronary syndrome transitions of care clinic and coordinates cardiology courses at the UK College of Pharmacy. And we are so excited to have her on to talk about a trial called A Fire. And Liz, I'm excited to talk about this one because it has just been all the buzz since it came out. So a fire came out in New England Journal in September of 2019, and the full title is Antithrombotic Therapy for Atrial Fibrillation with Stable Coronary Disease. So Tracy, we are going to talk about your thoughts on the trial. Before we get into that, let's set the scene for our audience. So a fire was really trying to answer the question of what to do with antithrombotic therapy in our stable coronary disease patients who qualify for both oral anticoagulation and antiplatelets. So this was a multi-center randomized trial conducted in Japan, and they randomized patients in a one-to-one ratio to receive either just rivaroxaban or a combination of rivaroxaban and an antiplatelet agent. So the antiplatelet agent was chosen based on provider discretion. This could have been aspirin or a P2Y12 inhibitor. I also just want to note the dosing of rivaroxaban used in this trial. So it's a little bit different than what we use here in the United States. It was 15 milligrams daily for patients with a creatinine clearance of 50 milliliters per minute or greater, and 10 milligrams daily for patients with a creatinine clearance of 15 to 49 milliliters per minute. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the discussion. The primary endpoint was this composite of stroke, systemic embolism, myocardial infarction, unstable angina requiring revascularization, and all-cause death. Safety was looking at bleeding, and this was defined by the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. 
and this was a non-inferiority trial that enrolled a little over 2,200 patients with a medium treatment duration of 23 months. The majority of patients were male, they were about 74 years of age, and their BMI was 24.5. Weight was roughly around 64 kilograms. Also important to note is just the patient's renal function. The creatinine clearance was roughly 62 milliliters per minute, and there was a median CHADS VASC of four. So the big question is, what did they find? So when they looked at the primary composite endpoint, they found that there was a reduction in the monotherapy group or the rivaroxaban group versus the combination group. So they found that monotherapy was both non-inferior and superior. And this was driven by hemorrhagic stroke and all-cause death. The other question on the flip side is always, what about bleeding? So from a bleeding standpoint, they found, as you may have expected, there was higher incidence of bleeding in patients on the combination therapy group versus those in the monotherapy group. So that is a brief overview of a fire, and you can find more about a fire on our blog with the citation there for you to read more. So with that being said, Tracy, what are your initial thoughts? Well, I think publication of this was uh, very important, and that's probably because we've long wanted to know what we should do after the patient is no longer in that acute coronary syndrome phase. And they have sort of dueling indications. We have the oral anticoagulant for the management of their atrial fibrillation, and this thing we're having a hard time getting over, which is saying that aspirin or the antiplatelet therapy should continue indefinitely after patients have experienced ischemic events or in those patients with known coronary artery disease. So I think it's exciting that we now have more solid information to apply to that patient. You might remember that in 2018 at the TCT meeting, their um, results of the OAC alone trial were released and that was later published in circulation. But that trial was really underpowered. It had a, a similar patient population, but um, it wasn't just on DOAC patients. In fact, the majority were on BKA, but it was really just terminated due to low enrollment. So I think we saw um, some important trends in that, but we certainly couldn't make meaningful conclusions. And I think now we really can talk about the patient who has the need to be on an anticoagulant and doing what is becoming quickly my favorite thing to do for patients, which is stop their aspirin, stop their P2Y12 inhibitor, because we now know that that is um, safer for patients and does not adversely affect their underlying atherosclerotic disease. A pharmacist loving to stop medications. What a novel idea. So Tracy, in terms of the population, what do you think about this population in the AFIRE trial and how does it apply to your patients in Kentucky? Yeah, I think Liz, you're hitting on probably one of the biggest controversies, which is can we take a largely Japanese patient population and apply it to individuals and patients in Western cultures? And that is complex because we know there are some um, potential important genetic differences in the way that coronary artery disease manifests. But also, I think it also starts to highlight the what could be viewed as weirdness around this dosing, right? So ribaroxaban was either 15 milligrams a day 
or 10 if patients had moderate renal impairment. And so I think um, through reading the discussion, and you know, I will encourage people to pull that literature and confirm, but you know, there are pharmacokinetic modeling studies that show the dose of riboxaban used is actually similar to the dose of 20 milligrams daily in a weight, white patient population. And so I think um, how we actually orchestrate this may be different. I'm not advocating based on this trial to necessarily go reducing the dose of rivaroxaban and stopping the antiplatelet therapy, but I think just philosophically treating the AFib as we understand we should treat um, AFib with the prevention of stroke and using the appropriate antithrombotic for that and not feeling obligated to continue that antiplatelet therapy is important. And where do we get further information that we've known this all along? Well, think back to 2002, where the WAR-S2 trial was published. That trial looked at VKA versus aspirin versus combination therapy with VKA and aspirin. And they showed that, lo and behold, warfarin, either in combination or alone, was better than aspirin in prevention of myocardial infarctions. The downside was, alone and in combination, VK antagonists increase your risk of bleeding. And so my point, that patient population didn't largely have to be on warfarin. It was really to manage the acute myocardial infarction period in an era where stenting wasn't um, routinely done. And so I think we learned, though, that warfarin, or VKA, prevented long-term complications from a myocardial infarction. And so now we can apply the understanding similarly to the way we do this, where you can be confident you're preventing their future ischemic events with anticoagulation. So that really leads into my next question, because when we first started hearing your thoughts, it sounded like, Awesome. So for every patient at 12 months, we'll just drop antiplatelet therapy. Do you think that this should be a blanket recommendation? You know, I think it's going to be interesting how those guideline writing committees take this and apply it to the long-term management of stable ischemic heart disease. I think in an era where we're um, increasingly being urged to balance the risk of bleeding, especially in this patient population that you know, initially may have come out of the cardiac catheterization lab on triple therapy to now um, a full you know, year or so after their events when they're more stable, I think we have to continue that conversation. And so rather than the complexity of continue or not continue, I think each patient is probably gonna need to be taken individual based on their risk. Do you think that we could extrapolate this to other uh, direct oral anticoagulants, like a pixaban? I think it's hard to imagine that this can't be inferred as a benefit for all oral anticoagulants. I mean, as I mentioned with, um, I hate to beat the drum, but with WARS-2, which was only VKA, we know that VKA protects against future ischemic events. We also know that rivaroxaban does. We have data from trials with a Pixaban that and Pixaban does, it's just all balancing the risk of thrombotic complication and bleeding. And I think what this trial adds to what we have as further understanding is that we have to stop saying you're going to be on aspirin forever, um, that there are very real reasons and in patients who have indications for oral anticoagulation, there should be a time where it is 
in their benefit to um, decrease the risk of bleeding by stopping their antiplatelet therapy. And by doing that, we don't worsen their risk of ischemic events. The FIRE trial has a lot of great information. Um, we had a lot of great discussion. So just to summarize, to give an overview, what are your final takeaways or clinical pearls for people listening? I think the main points for people listening is that what we were taught as pharmacists, which is to highly scrutinize the indication of each medication a patient is on, um, is now more relevant and when it comes to aspirin is now slightly more complicated. So I think if we take our time and really scrutinize why a patient is on each drug, it no longer behooves us to say simply that they had an MI 10 years ago and that this is something we need to continue forever. And so looking at that in relation to the other medications a patient takes, the indication for aspirin in this case has has shifted once again. So Liz, when we talk about the bottom line of this, I think um, an important thing for people to remember, and, and you sort of laughed about it as well, which is pharmacists stopping drugs. Well, in this case, if we stop aspirin in just 65 patients, then we will reduce the risk of mortality in one of those patients. And so, you know, again, maybe atypical for a pharmacist, but over-treatment is just as big of a problem as under-treatment. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, for being our very first guest. Thank you, Liz. So thank you again for joining us on the CardioScript podcast. Just to reiterate, you can find us on Twitter with our handle, at CardioScripts, and you can check out our website, CardioScripts.com, where the podcast will be uploaded and you can find our weekly blogs. And just to give you a little tease for the next episode, Dr. Steve Dunn from University of Virginia will be interviewed and talking about ISAR React 5. So listen to us next time. So when we do the end of these podcasts, I think we should do something funny with the name and have like a song or something. So this one, I want to call Hearts on Fire and play like the Rocky soundtrack song, Hearts on Fire. Tracy, we 100% do not have the budget to buy the Come rights on. to that. That cannot cost that much. What is our budget anyway? <laughs> what do Zero you Zero dollars? <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs>